Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Ariella Gross is John B. and Alice R. Sharp Professor of Law and History at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law, where she teaches contracts, history of American law, and race and gender in the law. Her research and writing focuses on race and slavery in the United States. Alejandro de la Fuente is Robert Wood Bliss Professor of Latin American History and Economics and is Professor of African and African American Studies and of History at Harvard University. He is a historian of Latin America and the Caribbean who specializes in the study of comparative slavery and race relations. Professors Gross and de la Fuente, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Could you give a brief overview of Becoming Free, Becoming Black, and how the work came about? Sure. So Alejandro and I have been working on this for a long time. We each had in our own work, for me, working on trials of racial identity in the United States and Alejandro looking at claims of freedom um, made by enslaved people in Cuba, we've both been thinking about bigger comparative questions in our own work and realized that collaborating might give us a chance to really think about how different regimes of race in the law came about looking at one British colony, one French, one Spanish, And of course, Louisiana changes hands several times during the the span that we're looking at. But to really ask the question, why is it that in all three of these places, which in many ways started from a similar effort of colonists to put into place racial distinctions in the law, why is it that they end up by 1860 with such different legal regimes of race? Why is it that in 1860, a free man of color in Havana could be a part of public life, but not in Louisiana or Virginia? And why did citizenship become so tied to whiteness in Louisiana and Virginia? And we thought that only in a a truly comparative work could we begin to answer those questions. We ended up actually at a different place from where we thought we would end. You know, we began to do a comparative study of uh, slave law in the Americas, you know, basically following the path created by a previous generation of comparativists, which goes back to the mid 20th century, really, to the work of people like Frank Tannenbaum and Stanley Elkins and later Carl Degler and and so forth. And along the way, we realized that really what we were finding was that what really mattered was not so much the law of slavery, it was the law of freedom. It was how legal regimes treated and constituted blackness. And we therefore ended up writing a book that, of course, has to do with enslavement and with the legal regimes of enslavement, but centers on the production of of race and of racial regimes from the law in these jurisdictions. What does a comparative approach do for your study? One of the things that that I thought surprised us was how, in some ways, this is a story that ends up 
in a different place in the mid 19th century, as Ariella was saying, but actually has very similar beginnings because in each of these jurisdictions, and the timing is not precisely the same because one of the things we tried to do and we tried to be very serious about in the book was about change across time in each of the jurisdictions. This is one of the most glaring problems with the previous studies. But despite some changes in chronology and some nuance, we basically began with a massive foundational similarity. In the three jurisdictions, the legal regimes constituted blackness as a category of debasement and social inferiority. It's a category of abjection. Um, by the late 17th century, early 18th century, being negro, noir, negro basically means to be it's a category of difference that is associated with the lowest possible situation in, in society or location in, in society with, with numerous legal handicaps that speak of blacks, not of, of slaves, but of blacks. The very first ordinance of slaves in the Americas approved by the town council of Santo Domingo of Hispaniola in the 1520s is called Ordenanza de los Negros. It's not called Ordinance of the Slaves but ordinance of the blacks. So we began from that massive similarity, and that, I think, is a radical departure from previous comparative scholarship. Because, you know, prior to us, most scholars have basically projected backwards some of the differences they encountered in the 19th century, and they explained those differences by basically by the existence of different legal regimes and traditions coming from Europe. You know, the absence of precedent in the case of the British colonies, the Roman tradition in the case of Spain and to some degree France. We transform, we take a new and different look at that process. And this is something that we would have never noticed this if we had not put these cases side by side. And I think that's the beauty of comparative history is that you are asking questions about your area of study that you would not ask otherwise, because you are only studying your own area. You don't need to ask the question. But once you put these places, these jurisdictions side by side, new questions emerge because you are drawing questions from one case and applying to the others. And in that process, you have to look for new answers. I think that's exactly right. I would also say um, there are uh, some ways that our work, I think, was able to go farther than either our own previous work, which was very localized, or these earlier comparative studies. So I think particularly strong in the popular culture, and it's a question that we always get, you know, from student audiences, is the idea that what really differentiates Latin America from the United States when it comes to race is multiplicity, the range of identities between black and white, and the idea that the U.S. is just black and white, but in Latin America because of interracial marriage and sexual relationships being more frequent, that that really explains differences not only in race, but in racism. Maybe that there's less racism, for example. And I think much wonderful work in Latin America has gone against that idea of, oh, it's really less racist because there's a, a range of racial identities. But you know, for myself, having written a book about the multiplicity of racial identities in the United States, right, the fact that the U.S. was not just black and white, but that in fact, 
racial identities have been very contested in the law when you look at what's going on on the ground. That made for me the comparative questions even more burning. Well, then what is the difference? If we also have this range of racial identities, if there are lots of people living on the ground between black and white, if we've never been just black and white, then what are the differences? And I think that really highlighted for us what was important about the contrast, that it's not about the range of racial identities, it's about the capacity or the possibility both of what are the chances an enslaved person can become free? And if they become free, what are the possibilities they can make claims on citizenship? And although it's true that free people of color in the United States are making those claims in very powerful ways in the 19th century, the opportunities for them are closing in on them. And that's political, that's cultural. And ironically, it's as much a result of the Republic as anything else, as the fact that the United States gains independence without emancipation in much of the United States, and that slavery becomes part of the politics of the Republic, and there's no counterpart to that. And then the other thing I think we really came to see by looking at change over time that wasn't available in some other recent comparative studies was how important that moment of the age of revolution is. So there were, you know, Kayla Grimberg, for example, had done this wonderful study of freedom suits in the age of revolution. And it was like, if you looked at this snapshot of the age of revolution, you might think, wow, there's all this commonality. People are claiming freedom, seizing their freedom all over the Americas, especially in urban settings. And that was true. But it was also true that the seeds are being planted in a place like Virginia for a different kind of politics, where although manumission and individual emancipation kind of takes off in the late 18th century. The laws are loosened. People are gaining their freedom and they're taking advantage of every opportunity. The white reaction to individual emancipation is to connect it to general emancipation, to say, oh my gosh, in fact, they call it partial emancipation because they're like, this is incredible threat to the polity of white men and to react against it and to crack down on free people of color and on manumission in a way that we don't see in Cuba where it's not the same kind of threat. And so, so I think by looking at the span of time, we're also able to see a different kind of comparative politics and law as well. There is an additional finding that is also interesting, talking about you know racial fluidity and racism, which is that, if anything, the Iberians lead the way in the creation of racially discriminatory regimes. These things are settled by the time Virginia is, becomes a colony. These things are already settled in the Spanish world. The location of blacks, of negros, in the legal regime is fairly clear and is clearly discriminatory. It's beyond a debate. So in some ways, this myth of a racial kumbaya in the, in the <laughs> Iberian world 
It's actually based on rather false evidence. Now, that's not the end of the story. Then comes the change across time that Ariella was referring to. But if you simply look at the foundational moment, it is the Iberians who are leading the way in the creation of these racist legal regimes. What are some of the ways that your work illustrates that those who became free were key to the construction of race and racial regimes and law in the Americas? So I would say, you know, free people of color, those who were able to gain their freedom, are important because they challenged the equation of blackness with enslavement and whiteness with freedom, which is what, from those earliest days of the colonies, what the slaveholding elites are going for. You know, it, that's the easiest um, way to organize a system of enslavement. It's the case, however, that the number, just the demographics, the size of the community of free people of color that's created is going to determine to some extent how much that community can really challenge that. So in Havana, as well as in New Orleans or in Virginia, the slaveholders would like to get rid of free people of color if they could. And there are certainly even initiatives or proposals, but they're they're dismissed. They're not successful. Whereas the movement to remove freed people back to Africa, even if they had been born in the southern states, is in places like Virginia and Louisiana, a very active movement that actually ships people to Liberia. And regardless of the number of people who actually leave for Liberia, the black laws that restrict their ability to remain in the state after they become free shape their lives and make their freedom very precarious. And so, you know, that dynamic, the movement for removal that really doesn't have a significant counterpart in Cuba, I think, you know, shows you kind of the difference in the trajectories in the in the 19th century. And there are also some very practical things. It's free people of color who help other enslaved people to become free, right? They're sort of the source of often of funds and resources and legal knowledge to help other people become free. So there are many ways in which they become important. Ariella was saying before that, you know, we highlight the importance of the age of revolution as a moment that is full of possibilities and also full of shortcomings. But in some ways, by then, by the age of revolution, things were already fairly different because Louisiana and Virginia arrived to the age of revolution with rather minor, small, in demographic terms, communities of free people of color. And Havana and Cuba in general have a fairly sizable, something like 15% of the total population. By as early as the 1770s, black freedom is not an unusual thing in a place like Havana. It's considerably less rarer in places like Virginia or Louisiana, although, although that would change dramatically between the 1770s and the first or the second decade of the 19th century. And it's interesting that in Havana, we quote sources from the early 19th century of colonial officials who basically lament that they did not foreclose, that they not, didn't close uh, on manumission before. 
and acknowledge quite openly that it's it is just too late to do anything at that point. I mean, so the free people of color also suffer a legal assault in Havana during the 19th century. That assault is less effective than in Virginia and Louisiana, and that in part that's due to the fact that that community is just too big to be obliterated. It's too much part of colonial life, and it's too much part of the difficult balance that Spain needs to do in order to maintain control over the colony. It's not simply politically expedient to get rid. And some colonial officials acknowledge this openly. I mean, they simply, they wish it was otherwise. They even look at southern states in the U.S. with admiration and envy. So again, there is nothing here about a peculiarly permissive racial attitude or different attitude towards enslaved people or people of African descent. There is, however, a very different configuration that they need to deal with. How does your work complicate understandings of who was a legal actor in slave societies? So that's a question that we love to get. (laughs) So one of the things, and I'm sure Ariella will speak to this as well, Because one of the things that brought us together, I think, as scholars and as perhaps also as friends, is that we shared a similar approach to the study of the law. In a previous life, I was a professor of of legal history at the University of Havana, uh, although I have recovered from that. And then then I met Ariella. You know, we both saw the law not as a, a set of rules, not through the certitude of statutory law. You know, we were not interested in questions of law versus reality or law versus society. We saw the law as basis of conflict where different actors advanced different interpretations, points of views, initiatives. And we both were very interested in recovering and understanding and studying how enslaved people and people of African descent had used legal spaces and had produced legal understandings over time through their own initiatives and through their own actions. That would have been, I think, a deal breaker if we didn't agree on that methodology and on that approach. But we we both took that for granted. That's where we came from, both of us from our various areas of study. Therefore, it was easy from the very beginning to envision a book in which the actions of enslaved people and the actions of people of African descent, of free blacks, would be at the very center of the story. That basically we wanted to tell a comparative story through the actions of these people. And therefore they became, or or at least we tried to tell the story in our book through their actions, we tried to center them as key actors in the story. They're not the only actors. You know, we also talk about legislators and colonial officials and legislative assemblies and all that. But we do, I think, make a genuine effort to write a comparative history from the bottom up. Wouldn't you say, Ariella? We certainly try to. I mean, I think that is, if you look kind of at the sweep of the historiography, right, the move had been from the comparativists tended to be doing the top down, you know, looking at the bird's eye view to have a global comparative approach, and then the generation of legal historians doing the kind of bottom-up micro-history were really doing local studies. So in some ways, it's unusual, I think, and it was a little daunting (laughs) um, to try to do something where we're looking at three places over a long sweep of time, but it's actually based on original archival 
research. It's not a synthetic. I mean, of course, there are aspects that are synthetic, as you would have to, but the kind of core materials of the book, which are the freedom suits and other kinds of trials and adjudications involving enslaved people's claims for freedom, are all our research. And so both methodologically in terms of just collecting all of these cases, but also the challenge, I think, of finding the big picture with that as your source is a challenge of a book like this. But I completely agree with Alejandro. That was the impetus for us to try to do that. And I do think it made it possible for us to see, on the one hand, this great commonality of people will go to unbelievable lengths, right, to use whatever tools are available to them to gain freedom for themselves and their families. And sometimes it's remarkable what they can do with so little. And when you imagine people who are likely illiterate, don't have access to lawyers, finding lawyers, learning gaining legal knowledge through their networks, getting themselves to a courthouse. It's often, you know, remarkable what they're able to do, but that there are differences in opportunity to actually shape the law. And so one of the things that was so striking to me coming from uh, U.S. jurisdictions where, of course, Enslaved people purchase their freedom. That happens across slave systems any time and place. There are people who are purchasing their freedom and often doing so over some period of time and installment payments. But those contracts in the British colony and then in the United States were not enforceable at law. And so for me to see what was possible for an enslaved person in Cuba in the practice of coartacion, where someone could fix a price for her sale and then not only force the slave owner to sell at that price whenever she comes up with it, but that other rights start being added to that or other claims. Well, if I've paid five-eighths of my purchase price, I own five-eighths of my time or my labor, and I should be paid wages for that time. There were enslaved people in Louisiana Spanish for some period of time, and we see them immediately bringing claims for coartacion in Louisiana when it becomes Spanish, doubling the population of free people of color. After Louisiana becomes American, we found a case where an enslaved person brings just that kind of claim to a Louisiana court. He says, I paid five-eighths of my price. I should own five-eighths of myself and my time and labor, and therefore I, you know, I should be free because I've paid. But he doesn't get anywhere with that claim. <laughs> um, the, the Louisiana Supreme Court compliments his lawyer on the creativity of the argument. <laughs> you know, so I, I think it gives us this opportunity to see on the one hand the commonalities and also the limits of that ability. Why is it important to look beyond written edicts or statutes to understand law's operations? 
because you would miss a ton, actually. You would miss the initiatives, not only of enslaved people, but of all kinds of plebeian and subaltern actors who bring their own understandings, their own expectations to courts of justice and to uh, legal authorities. And in the process, case after case, after case after case, over decades, centuries, they create meanings. They create meanings that end up sometimes uh, becoming custom. And, you know, from custom to law, the distance is, as you know, rather small. So you would miss that creativity that the Louisiana Supreme Court was talking about, that Ariella was referring to before. You would miss that if you stayed with the statutes. In fact, you would miss the whole world of coartacion entirely because coartacion was not a statutory legal figure. It was never treated in written law that we know of until fairly late in the 18th century. And when it is addressed in written law in some of the royal decrees from the Spanish crown after the 1760s, it is for reasons completely different from black freedom or from manumission. The question is, who should pay certain taxes over those operations? That's really what concerns royal bureaucrats in Madrid. And the question is prompted, of course, by enslaved people themselves who are trying to purchase their own freedom piece by piece. And as they do that, they try to claim some of these other ancillary rights that Ariela was talking about. So as they do that, the question comes up, so who should be paying taxes here? Should be the, the buyer of the freedom, who is, in this case, imagine is the enslaved person herself, more frequently than himself, or should the owner pay for these taxes? But as bureaucrats have to deal with this, they need to examine these practices, these practices that have no foundation on statutory law. You cannot find in the Corpus Juris Civilis of Roman law any reference to this. You cannot find it in the Siete Partidas. You actually have to look at these contentious freedom suits and conflicts over time in order to understand the contours of this legal custom, of these understandings, these vernacular understandings that have evolved over time and that by the 19th century find space in statutory law. So if you were a legal scholar who simply found something in writing in the 19th century, you would really miss the enormously rich social history behind that law, behind that document. You would also miss the, the incredible story that what you are reading was actually, to an enormous degree, a victory, a legal victory, by enslaved people, a victory that admittedly took centuries to achieve. It was not, so it's, it's, it's not an easy victory, but it's an, a remarkable victory nonetheless, because by the 19th century, some legal documents, some statutes, in fact, treat this as a true right. In other words, it's something that the enslaved can do despite the opposition of their honor. It's a true right. Now, that is, an, it, that is not a small victory for an enslaved person to achieve. So again, you would miss that whole history, and, and that's one of the things we try to do in the book. I would also just add that in addition to what we get from the trial records and the records of these suits, we found that especially for Virginia, also for Louisiana, 
that petitions to the legislature were another incredible source for the voices of ordinary people and and especially for the kind of intersection of law and politics. And they were both free people of color petitioning to remain in the state that was their home. There are some really heartbreaking ones that are petitions to choose a new master and re-enslave oneself in order to stay in one's home state. And then also the petitions of white citizens of the Commonwealth demanding removal of free people of color or other kinds of responses to free people of color. So, you know, we also found that to be and just in the search to find those traces of the voices of people who aren't writing the statutes, that petitions are also an incredible source. Why were women important figures in generating slavery and freedom? Well, so part to sequitur ventrum, right? Children follow the condition of the mother. It's remarkable that in almost every jurisdiction, female rates of manumission were considerably higher for enslaved um, women than for men. Now, this, you know, we can find explanations for this in terms of the location of women in the local economy, uh, in the domestic economy, in the domestic sphere. There's evidence that female slave owners tended to favor enslaved women in manumission plans. But I think there is also significant evidence to suggest that enslaved people themselves and families, you know, that this was an active strategy because basically liberating, guaranteeing the manumission of a woman or the liberation of an enslaved woman made it possible for the progeny to be free forever. And that becomes actually a point of contention in the law. I mean, one of the ways to become free is to is to demonstrate that you that you descend from somebody who was not enslaved. And Ariella can talk about some of those fascinating cases. Over time, the impact of those differential rates of manumission is enormously consequential because uh, we trace, actually, we even talk about a few cases of enslaved women who managed to become free in late 16th century, early 17th century Havana. That That's the very origins of what would become a fairly large and somewhat prosperous community of free people of color. So gender is at the very center of the story. It's also at the center of the reproduction of slavery, of course, because enslaved women would also, their progeny would also be enslaved. So we we try to, as we follow the development of these communities, we try to be attentive to what is, I mean, there is much work to be done on this yet. I think we there is a lot of additional research that needs to be done. But at least we try to gesture to the importance of that in the book. One important way to claim freedom in Virginia and later in Louisiana is to claim an Indian female ancestor. And it's one of the ways that claim for freedom become kind of racialized in Virginia and Louisiana in a way they're not in Cuba. But what's really remarkable is, and actually Honor Sachs is doing some great, has done some great work on this, the way that if one claimant is successful 
with a freedom suit based on an Indian ancestor, a great-great-grandmother or great-grandmother, that the news would travel so that other descendants of that same Indian woman would start bringing suits. And she's traced uh, this one family who's responsible for dozens of successful freedom suits around the turn of the 18th century. That's really remarkable. It seems to be in part the same lawyer who's bringing some of these cases, but they're actually, you know, bringing in court records from a far-flung county to their own county to say, you know, she was descended from Hannah and she's free, so I should be free as well. So these uh, maternal ancestors become extremely important, and it's also sort of that intersection between gender and race. What is the process and what are the rewards and pitfalls when writing a collaborative book? All right, I'll start. (laughs) Um, I'd like to have the last word on this one, yeah. No, I, I, I think it's incredibly rewarding. One thing it isn't is faster. <laughs> you know, I but I think collaborating certainly made this a better book. For us, our process when it came to writing was first to, you know, sit down uh, on Skype and talk about, usually on Skype, sometimes in person when we could but to kind of map out what the chapters would look like. And then we each did a first draft of, you know, we divided up the chapters to write a first draft. And then we traded them back and forth to the point where there are one or two chapters that I would just not be able to remember who wrote the first draft of because we went back and forth so many times. And I think there are a couple of things. One, we made the decision not to separate out like you do the Cuban sections and I'll do the U.S. sections, but rather to kind of immerse ourselves in the literatures of all the jurisdictions we're looking at and to really each write in the whole comparative work and integrate it. Although we did the archival work separately to share those documents and read in those in addition to the secondary literature. And I also think that our disagreements made it stronger. So I think we came from different perspectives on particular issues. I think one of the strongest parts of the book, to my mind, that became really key that middle chapter on the age of revolution changed a great deal as we changed the periodization of the book. And part of that was because we wrote drafts that were very different depending on where the end point of the age of revolution was, right? And so in hashing that out and thinking about what the argument was and where change was really happening, I know that in the middle of one of our debates, I went out and read a few, collected a few hundred more cases (laughs) to make my point. So I think it just, it strengthened both the research and the writing to really have to 
argue a lot of the points along the way. You know, a good editor or colleague can sometimes help you with things when they read it, but nobody will read and engage with every word that you write, like your collaborator. And so for me, that process, which was totally new to me, was much more rigorous than, you know, what I would get from just workshopping something. I agree with Ariel. I think the key thing was that we would not really edit each other's work. We would rewrite each other's work, which was sometimes painful because, you know, imagine you produce your chapter. You know how it is. You are somewhat attached to it. You think you've done a good, a decent job, you know, for a first draft and all that. But you still develop some degree of attachment to your text. You've gone through it. Then you send it to your co-author, your co-author sends something back saying, what on earth are you talking about? You don't even know what you're talking about. And that process, which can sometimes be tense, of course, because, you know, your text is being, it's not being edited. It's not being, you know, it's, it's not the kind of polite debate that you engage with when you take a text before an audience. This is something completely different. You basically submit a text to your partner to for her or for him to look at it, you know, cannibalize whatever he or she may find useful, but basically he or she is going to write a new chapter and forget about yours. Then <laughs> in that process, we would sometimes actually kind of go back to previous versions. So we have chapter V1, V2, V3, V4. I mean, I think I have one chapter that had V12. <laughs> And and then you say, no, no, but I said something really smart like four versions ago. I want to recover those three sentences. And sometimes, you know, there was one, I don't remember which chapter, that we agonized over like a paragraph for like a week. And at the end of the week, I told Ariela, maybe we need to move on and we'll revisit this at the end or whatever, because this is ridiculous. I mean, we've spent a week of our lives arguing over 25 <laughs> words, you know. <laughs> Come on, this is not that important. So yeah. in the process, of course, you are enriched enormously and your work gets so much better because we would not just comment on each other. We would basically rewrite each other. And that's why, as Ariela said before, it's very hard now to say, I wrote this paragraph or she wrote this paragraph. It's because the whole text would go through this rewriting exercises until we had something that we were comfortable enough with that we would say, okay, then we'll revisit at the end. And we would basically put it aside. So that's one thing. The other thing, and I also agree with her on this, was that we forced ourselves out of our comfort zones. So I had to learn and do research on Louisiana and Virginia you know, most of the primary material Ariella would give to me. There is a lot of stuff online, especially for, for both places. When you do U.S., it's actually very different from Latin America. There are so many digital materials that you can access, papers, primary documents. We forced ourselves to understand because otherwise we wouldn't have been able to rewrite ourselves. We could have only rewritten the portions that we were comfortable with. So we would write a chapter and the chapter would, of course, include the three cases, and that would begin the process that we were describing before. You know, it's a shame that this is something that 
in good conscience, I cannot really advocate for junior scholars because it does take a while to go through this process. It's a shame because, you know, with the tenure clock pressures and all that nonsense, they have to produce certain things by certain dates and all this. When we entered this project, we were both in a position in which those things were not a concern for us. But at the same time, you know, this is the kind of collaborative work that perhaps we should be inviting junior scholars to engage with, because this is the kind of book that is very difficult. I don't think I would have ever been able to write this book with Ariella, frankly. I mean, I, I, and it's a book that was somewhere in my radar for many years. I wanted to do something like this, but just becoming familiar to the point that you feel comfortable with the literature and the primary sources of these other places was just, you know, was just too much. So collaboration is in need for a book like that. What are the stakes of your work? Yeah, I guess I think at least for me, everything that I've done in one way or another has been trying to understand race as the American dilemma, you know, the the Myrtle quote. But if we take American to mean what it should mean, all of the Americas, then I think we can still use the phrase, right? How did we come to our regimes of race in the Americas? And so... When I think about the stakes, that, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. I think if you think about what are the connections to the present day, you know, unfortunately, I feel like now there are, it's just a constant barrage of, of echoes that I hear of, of aspects of what we studied, right? You know, when President Trump says, send them back, it's hard not to, you know, hear the echoes of the movement to remove people of color from the United States. I think the kind of black laws that restricted free people of color were kind of a template, not only for Jim Crow laws, but also for discriminatory immigration regimes. One way to think about your good question is uh, is to think about the present. And, and of course, this book, like any other, is very much a child of the present we live in. But we should also remember that we began to work on this book before the White House became the White's House. You know? uh, we began to work on this book on a different age and under different circumstances, even though in that age, those uh, regimes of race felt and continued to feel very real. And that is common across the Americas. That is not an American in the sense of U.S. story. And I think the other possible answer to your question, certainly for me as someone who grew up in Latin America and who got his education in Latin America, was the fact that I, I always felt as a scholar of race in Latin America that American comparativists or that American-based comparativists have gone to Latin America to basically find answers to their own problems of race, like Frank Tannenbaum did in the mid-20th century. Basically, the question is, what's wrong with us? So let's go and look. And that's why they came up with these rosy pictures about Latin America, basically to denounce and emphasize the problems of American society, the American problem, the American dilemma, right? So that scholarship was in some ways an act of introspection. It was really not interested in the history of race and of enslaved people south of Rio Grande. 
And that history doesn't need the U.S. to be part of this broader history of uh, racism and enslavement uh, in the Americas and in the Atlantic world. So this is a comparative book that tries to move away from that and that tries to look at these foundational commonalities, which are very much part of our present, but without then doing violence to the different historical trajectories of these societies, which are not about being less racist or more racist or better or worse. It's about what was politically possible and legally possible in each of these cases. I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. Thank you.